This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew, today discussing the latest on COVID in Rhode Island and beyond with Dr. Megan Rennie. And wrapping up a week of daily pods here on B-Town with Dr. Rani, who really has become one of the nation's leading voices when it comes to combating COVID. She's an emergency room physician at Rhode Island Hospital and an associate professor at Brown University. And look, you know, we'd be more than happy to have Dr. Rani on the program at any point. But boy, is this a particularly important and urgent moment here as we see the COVID numbers spiking in the state. Just this week, Governor Raimondo said at her weekly COVID-19 press conference that she's considering moving us back to phase two. We're going to find out more restrictions later today. She's got another press conference coming up at 1 p.m., which you can stream as always at btown.stream. I'll be in the room asking questions. And the big thing right now, hospital surge capacity. And it's very possible that in short order, in fact, the governor said as soon as four to five weeks, we may be at that surge capacity and have to reopen and for the first time utilize one of our field hospitals here in the state. So things definitely taking a turn. Um, We have been in this together all year through thick and thin, trying to navigate it. And here we are back again after somewhat of a respite right during the summer. It did seem like things were dialed in, the numbers were slowing down, but we always kind of knew, right, that there was going to be some kind of second wave, some kind of surge coming up. Just felt it, we just were sort of preparing for it. And here we are entering into that. So Dr. Randy today, breaking down where we're at, where we may be heading, what we can do to mitigate the risk as much as possible. And look, some of this stuff has been floated around since the beginning of the pandemic here in Rhode Island and the United States specifically, which is mask wearing, obviously hand washing, all that business. But really what it comes down to now, it sounds like is modifying habits when it comes to group sizes, interactions. And, you know, we've been hearing it of late to wear a mask when you're around people outside of your household, um, whenever you're hanging around, even in a small group. And it seems like that's kind of at the forefront of the discussion. We also get into schools, we get into the workplace, a whole bunch coming up in this very important episode of the pod. And a um, couple of housekeeping matters. We just hit a thousand members in the B-Town Facebook group, which you can access at btown.stream. In there, you'll find all the live streams and interactive discussions. I think that's what the value of that platform is, the discussions between listeners. So um, I know there's a lot of you out there. Head over to the Facebook group and get involved if you want to interact a little bit. You can also send me an email anytime, bill at ripodcast.com or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Bill Bartholomew. And if you'd like to support the independent journalism, opinion, analysis, and entertainment that B-Town has become known for, there's a couple of ways you can do that. Number one, you can leave a rating and review wherever you're listening right now, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. Or if you'd like to go another step, you can become a B-Town insider. Simply head to patreon.com slash Bartholomewtown, where for as little as $3 per month, you can help to sustain this program. For $10 a month, you'll become an insider and you'll receive exclusive content, including commentary and analysis from myself and Household names here in the Ocean State. We get Mr. Ted Nisi on there, Ian Donis, some big shots coming on, coming your way, breaking down the presidential election. That's there for you on B-Town Insider. Okay, let's get right into it today. Again, wrapping up day five of a week of daily podcasts. It has been awesome to spend this week bringing you daily content, a bit of a test, and um, boy, has it been exciting to see the response and um, how many of you have been listening to all of them. So I really appreciate it. And we keep growing here over at B-Town. There's no doubt about that. And it's really because of you spreading the word. I don't spend any money on advertising or anything like that. This is totally organic 
grassroots journalism. And uh, again, it comes down to you and your support, spreading the word, sharing the episodes, and um, just building this thing together. All right, let's get to it. Dr. Megan Ranney, Brown University, Rhode Island Hospital, talking COVID. So we are at a point now here in Rhode Island, we're seeing significant increases in cases. We're seeing multiples of 85% increases over the course of, of a short period of time here in the state. And frankly, we are at a point where it feels like we're on the verge of kind of diving back into what we were experienced to some degree, maybe some degree, maybe not exactly what we experienced in the spring, but something like that. So what is your perspective right now here, end of October, heading into the quote unquote flu season, which I guess we're already in, but what, what is your perspective overall on where we stand with COVID-19 in Rhode Island? Uh, we are at a precarious point regarding COVID-19 here in Rhode Island. Um, we did an unbelievable job in the spring and summer at getting our rates down and keeping them down. Our governor and our Department of Health uh, were proactive and forward-thinking in terms of developing the systems and the strategies that we needed to stay safe. Unfortunately, we are experiencing the same surge that pretty much every state across the country is experiencing right now. And the question is gonna be, are we proactive enough to stop it? Um, I'm worried. We're seeing hospitalization rates that are higher than we've had at any point since uh, mid-April. Um, the trend is absolutely in the wrong direction. And unfortunately, I don't see people recognizing the risk and changing their behavior. I worry that we are all simply too fatigued of this pandemic to at this point do the right thing, which means cutting back on the number of social contacts that we have, committing to always wearing a mask, and reducing the amount of indoor socializing that we're doing. And I guess that's of particular note is just yesterday, we're taping on a Thursday. So on Wednesday, the governor announcing that she's hearing from hospitals in the state that there's a concern about hitting capacity, hitting ICU capacity and having to reopen, um, or I guess really for the first time open and utilize one of the field hospitals. That's extremely alarming because that's a completely different narrative than we were thinking certainly through the thick of the summer where it seemed like, okay, we're getting this dialed in and we're moving to a point where we can infrastructurally manage it. Are you concerned about that sort of surge of hospitalizations, surge of ICU, severe uh, outcomes and so forth? I, I am, Bill, 100% concerned about that. Um, I actually just gave a national interview a few days ago where I said that you know here in Rhode Island, one thing that gives me some faith is the fact that we already did all the planning to create that surge capacity. But um, I tell you, I am very worried that that's where we're heading. What about schools? We hear all the time from teachers, from the teachers union saying, look, inside schools, particularly when it comes to Providence right now, that's where we're getting the most vocal pushback, but really around the state, there's a tremendous concern about maybe not so much the asymptomatic impact, but the transmission impact that then makes its way to the most vulnerable populations via the school pipeline. The governor, when I asked her about this yesterday, she said that there's no verifiable information that would suggest that schools are in any way, shape, or form a hotbed. 
But at what point do we have to start thinking more in terms of distance learning and closing down schools or at least making significant changes to where we're at right now? You know, it's a really great great question. And I have spent a lot of time thinking about schools, not just as a scientist, physician, and public health professional, but also as a parent of two kids who are in our Rhode Island public school system. Um, We're in a balancing act, right? where we are trying to balance the health and safety of our students and uh, staff with the social and emotional and again, physical safety aspects um, of having schools open. To date here in Rhode Island, as well as in most communities across the country, there have been no demonstrated outbreaks of COVID-19 within schools. And in fact, there have been very few outbreaks in workplaces as long as proper precautions are being used um, as long as people are wearing masks, staying in stable pods, and staying at a distance from each other. Now, the thing about schools is this question of, are they a gateway drug, right? Does having schools open encourage people to socialize or to do other activities that they wouldn't otherwise do? And the one thing locally that um, doesn't convince me that shutting schools down is the right answer is that we're seeing similar rates of infection among kids who are in distance learning compared to kids that are actually in our physical school buildings right now. So that says to me that even if we shut schools down, those kids are still out socializing and doing other activities. So unless we not just shut down schools, but also shut down everything else, uh, I'm not sure that shutting schools would have the effect on transmission that we'd be that we'd be hoping for. And again, the fact that we're not seeing transmission within the schools right now says to me that at least for now, and we'll have to keep looking at this on a week by week basis. But at least for now, the benefits of keeping schools open for kids is greater, much greater than the risk. That's certainly interesting. I mean, on the day schools opened here in Rhode Island, and I think it was September 21st, um, the Providence Public School District held a news conference and they did demonstrations of, hey, the ventilation in particular buildings isn't adequate. The cleanliness of our, our vendors aren't doing a good job of cleaning, things of this nature. And what are some key things that schools can do to minimize the impact of COVID um, that they're not doing already? Obviously, they're doing the screening and so on and so forth so forth, but is there anything else? Yeah, I mean, so the the thing is, is that I think that what schools are currently doing is working because we have not seen transmission of COVID within the schools. So those basic cleaning measures, making sure kids are in stable pods and making sure that kids are wearing masks and that teachers are wearing masks, including in break rooms, um, is critical. The thing that we really need to double down on is what happens outside of school on the athletic fields, in the extracurriculars, in the house parties or play dates, that's where we're seeing transmission happen. And yes, we've seen an increase in the number of cases among school-age kids, but we've also seen an increase in the number of cases among everyone. And again, there's no evidence that these kids are catching it in the school setting. It's happening in those other activities that are that are happening um, outside of school. So What is it that schools need to be doing? They need to be helping to reinforce those behavior change messages for what you do outside of school. Now, I would love to see testing. I will say that one thing that I would love to see across our our elementary and middle and high school system, both public and private, is increased availability of testing, similar to what some of our universities, including my own University of Brown, are doing, right? We're testing people regularly 
um, to make sure that we identify infections early. That can help um, get people out of the school setting and into isolation and quarantine um, earlier, um, particularly because we know that kids can be asymptomatic. But unfortunately, um, as you know, there is simply not enough testing available and we have persistently underfunded our public schools for decades. They don't have the money. I sit on my school reopening committee in my town and we're one of the better funded towns um, in the state. And our school district budget is still tight. Um, we're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul at this point where we're buying PPE and um, putting in all of these safety measures um, with money that we didn't have. Uh, so it, it, although I'd love to see testing, there would really have to be another source of funding to make that happen. And of course, there's just not enough availability of testing right now, period, uh, thanks to continued um, problems on the federal level. Yeah. And of, of course, COVID has illuminated challenges that have already been there and many people have been working on for decades, but disparities in education, access to healthcare, that's all there. And so how much are you anticipating a person's zip code, a person's economic status, potentially a person's race or ethnicity will impact the second wave of COVID that we're, we're entering into? Have we made the necessary adjustments in communities that were left behind, you know, you think back to the, the, the spring and there were simply, there were major problems with translation, testing, transportation, uh, tra testing, transportation in terms of getting folks to locations to be tested in certain neighborhoods. And we saw the consequences of that with significant twenties approaching 30% positivity rates. Do you think those adjustments have been made? That's a really tough question. Um, you know, these problems were not created overnight and they're not going to be fixed overnight. I know that Dr. Alexander Scott has made um, attention to health equity issues a cornerstone of her tenure at the Department of Health. And I know that she has done everything in her power to help address these issues. But the uh, underlying problems are larger um, and deeper than what we can fix in just a few months. So we've certainly seen improvements in testing, improvements in translation of materials into different languages, improvement in door-to-door -door outreach um, to the highest risk communities. Um, I think our state is doing far better than many others. Is it perfect? No. Um, but again, I, I as much as I wish that we could snap our finger or put one policy or procedure in place that would fix it, um, the underlying structural inequities run deep um, and are going to take sustained effort uh, to fix. We're obviously already in an election, given the unique circumstances of this year, but we've got election day coming up on Tuesday. And we've we've heard a lot about, I mean, look, there's people out that are that are saying, oh, well, COVID's going to be over on uh, the day after election day. You watch, you know, if, if it's a political <laughs> thing, it's this, it's that. But what really will be impacted, in your opinion, based on examining the platforms of the, or the approaches, really, of, of the two primary candidates, what would change if Biden a Biden-Harris ticket were uh, elevated to the presidency and vice presidency? So let me start by saying that this virus is not political or partisan. Um, the virus doesn't really care who's in office. It's going to spread the way a virus spreads, um, no matter whether it's Biden-Harris or Trump-Pence uh, at the helm. 
the thing that could change is that we could have a coherent evidence-based national strategy to help stop the spread. The virus itself is not going to change, but we can take human action to help uh, prevent it from moving <laughs> from one person to another. And, you know, the Trump administration declared just a couple of days ago that it was over, that we yeah. won. And I'd invite him to come to any emergency department or hospital in this country um, and then say that it's really over and that we've won. Now, the one caution that I'll make is that um, even should Biden-Harris win, uh, they're not going to be put in office until January 20th. We have a really long couple of months ahead of us. Um, and I think that if this year has shown us anything, it's that we have to depend on our state governments and on the goodwill and innovation of ordinary people to create change, because we're not going to make it through this winter if we wait for a new president to be inaugurated. Discover over 200 episodes of Rhode Island's podcast of record, the Bartholomew Town podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your pods, or head over to our website, ripodcast.com. Coming up this Tuesday, B-Town presents wall-to-wall election coverage. I'll be driving around the state interviewing candidates and voters. Tune in at btown.stream or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Bill Bartholomew for in-depth, live, local analysis of what's going on in the Ocean State on Election Day. That is a fascinating, well, it's a disturbing and fascinating conversation (laughs) around the wintertime here and hunkering down, you know, is it appropriate to look, we don't want people hoarding PPE. We don't want people, you know, the run on N95 masks and all of that. And frankly, toilet paper and things of that nature as well. But what, what level of concern are you um, kind of with a national tone here as well? Because a lot of people are traveling and so on and so forth. What, what sort of attention are you paying to the cause and effect of people actually hunkering down this winter and really even if it's not imposed in a, you know, the phases or the formal senses um, of going back into some kind of self-imposed quarantine? Um, you know, Bill, that's a really tough question to answer. I have hope and I know what the right answer would be, um, but I'm not confident that we're going to be able to do it. What I'd like to see is that we all make the right choices, that we minimize our social encounters and kind of going out over the next few months without forcing us to go back into lockdown. Um, That is a worst case scenario, um, not only for individuals' mental and emotional health, but also for our small businesses across the state. Um, I'd like to be able to see places stay open and see them take the proper precautions to to allow that to happen. Um, We need to prioritize schools first and those small businesses second. Uh, But my worry is, again, that we're all fatigued already. The communication from the federal level is so... um, mixed and conflicting, uh, that it makes diff- it makes it difficult for people to know uh, where to get their evidence from. And uh, it may need, unfortunately, local governmental intervention and um, executive orders to uh, get us to do the right thing as individuals. Right, because I wonder how far away are we from really having to go to a point where geez, you know, the nat- you're, you're ordered at home from a formal and, and um, I guess, basically martial law position where the National Guard is handing out ham sandwiches out of, out of Hummers. Right. 
you know, how far away are we from that being implemented if, if people aren't willing to comply with the basic stay-at-home guidance? You know, I am not the governor or the director of the <laughs> Department of Health, so it's tough for me to say what they are going to do and when they are going to um, pull the trigger on those decisions. Yeah. Um, I suspect that we will be going back a phase in terms of reopening um, and that we just have to make it really clear um, to our fellow Rhode Islanders that we have a choice to make. Uh, we can do our best to follow the rules. Uh, as difficult as it is, in order to stay at phase two, uh, or, you know, currently we're at phase three, um, in order to support our neighbors and our communities, businesses and livelihoods, in order to keep our kids in school, or we can do risky things and insist that it's our right um, to go to a party or a wedding and put the rest of the community at risk. Um, and I think that we as Rhode Islanders are better than that. I think that we're tightly knit enough um, and we care enough about each other that most of us who have the choice will hopefully step up and do the right thing when we really see the numbers and understand uh, how bad this is getting. Um, but again, I'm, I'm not the one who's in the position to, to be having to make that call right now. So, so tough for me to say what, what the governor and Dr. Alexander Scott are going to do. Undoubtedly. All right. Last 60 seconds here. And uh, always, well, not always your first time on the show, but I do very <laughs> much appreciate you uh, coming on here as I'm sure our audience does as well. But how has this changed you as a medical professional, as a scientist, let's say going forward the next period of your life, what's the biggest difference you're going to, you know, feel or approach how your difference in approach to your job, you know, what's, what's shaking things up the most? I mean, my gosh, Bill, what hasn't gotten shaken up over the last seven months? Um, I feel, you know, if you had told me a year and a half ago um, that I was going to be spending a significant portion of my time fighting a global um, viral pandemic, uh, I would have laughed at you. Um, normally, my work is around injury and mental health and the use of technology to identify and prevent those. Um, but I think that, you know, where I see that this has changed me is that it has doubled down on my commitment to effective science communication and to my um, commitment to community innovation and my commitment to public-private partnership. Um, those are the things that I have seen have made a difference. And, you know, even should our administration change, we have a lot of work to do as a society. And um, I don't see my commitment to any of those things going away anytime soon. And um, I'm just excited to create opportunities um, to work with others who have the same commitment to improve our public's health in all of these really interesting, creative, collaborative ways um, that we've seen emerge over the course of the pandemic, because it's going to be needed um, no matter who the president is. Thanks, Doc. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I hope everyone goes out and votes. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Countdown is on. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Join us on Instagram at Bartholomew Town Podcast or follow my personal page at Bill Bartholomew. We'll talk soon.